Welcome to Literary Quest, a podcast hosted by us, Vicki and Marissa, where we discuss our favorite and fantasy fiction and hopefully can direct you in your quest to find your next great read. Welcome to Literary Quest and Happy Pride Month. This month we're featuring books with LGBTQ characters and we will be kicking things off with A Marvelous Light by Freya Mass. Marsk. Something like that. Okay, so just a couple content warnings. We'll um, likely be discussing, well, we will be discussing murder, suicide, and sex. And I will be doing the characters this week, and Marissa will be doing our plot. So kicking it off with Robin Blythe. He is um, our first main male lead. He is the son of two prominent philanthropists. He's unaware that magic exists until he is accidentally placed in a civil servant position after the previous employee, Reggie Gatling, vanishes. He himself does not have any magic. Um, he has a sister named Maud who wants to go to university. Then we have Edwin Corsi. He's the other male lead. He is the liaison between Robin's position and the prime minister. He's very intelligent, loves research and puzzles. He has magic, but is not very powerful and is self-conscious about this. His brother, Walter, bullied him and abused him. And his sister, Belinda, wasn't much better. We have Adelaide Morrissey. She is Robin's typist. She's very intelligent and was also the typist slash secretary to Reggie. She basically does the job as Reggie was not around very often and Robin also is not around very often. We have Flora Sutton. This is Reggie's aunt and she's a powerful but bold magician. She has imbued her house with a lot of magic and has a magic maze there as well. This uh, book is set in England in September of 1908. All right. So A Marvelous Light opens with Reggie Gatling being tortured with magic by mysterious men regarding the location of a mysterious magical object. Then he is killed. When Reggie doesn't turn up for work for two weeks, it's assumed that he's just abandoned his job and he is replaced by Sir Robin Blythe, a human with no knowledge of the magical world who has been given the job working in the Office of Special Domestic Affairs and Complaints. He doesn't know what this job entails and is bewildered even further when his new assistant, Adelaide Morrissey, introduces him to Edwin Corsi, the liaison to the chief minister of the Magical Assembly. Robin demands that Edwin explain what his job actually entails, and Edwin explains that magic is like a thing, and that Robin's job is to investigate bizarre happenings around England and determine if they are magical, magically related, to report that to Edwin, who will take care of the things from there. Robin remains bewildered. Uh, but Edwin is very concerned about the sudden disappearance of Reggie Gatling. And so Edwin leaves Robin and goes to question Reggie's family regarding his disappearance. But they don't seem too concerned about it. Apparently, it's not odd for Reggie to just disappear. While at their house, Edwin inspects a clock of theirs that has been acting strangely since around the time of Reggie's disappearance. Meanwhile, Robin, after a bizarre introduction to his job, meets with his financial advisor. Robin's parents recently died and left the bulk of their money to charities. 
They were more concerned about being remembered well than taking care of their heirs, which means that Robin and his younger sister, Maud, are in difficult financial straits, and Robin is trying to figure out what to do. That evening, on the way home from his boxing club, Robin is assaulted by magical masked men who question him about the missing object. Robin obviously has no idea what they're talking about. He just learned about magic today that these fools are fools and they put a curse on him as incentive to look for their missing magical object. The next day, Edwin turns up at Robin's office, which has been tossed and there are papers everywhere. Robin also shows Edwin the curse that was placed on him and Edwin realizes that things are a lot more serious than he initially thought. Also that something secret must have been going on with Reggie. And so he has Robin pack a bag and they head out to Edwin's family's home in the country where there is a very large library and people with more magical ability than Edwin has who may be able to help him break the curse. And so they arrive and are basically accosted by Edwin's sister, Belle's magic. And Edwin is annoyed to discover that she is hosting several of her friends who are all dirtbags. All of these magical people are dirtbags. They're terrible. Edwin's father and his brother, Walt, are heading back to town. Uh, Walt is immensely powerful, but has also bullied and abused Edwin for his entire life. And so Edwin is happy to see him go. Edwin begins searching the library for books that may help him break the curse. And Robin joins in. Robin begins to suspect that Edwin is gay. After a meeting with the magician that they had before leaving town, and then he finds a pamphlet of homoerotic literature stuffed into a book in Edwin's library. And so Robin hints to Edwin that he is also gay and realizes that he finds Edwin attractive. Their researching is interrupted by Belle's demands that they go boating and play a game the next day. Initially, the game ends up being fun. However, things go awry when Robin is attacked by a herd of birds and falls into the lake. The curse on him becomes active, which causes him immense disabling pain. And then Edwin realizes that someone has also cast a spell on him that would disable him from being able to use his legs. And so Edwin has to save him or he will drown. And then Edwin begins to question if someone staying at their estate is actually working against them and trying to harm Robin. Edwin uses uh, his sister Belle's husband, Charlie, to try to break the curse on Robin, but it fails and seems to make things worse. Edwin and Robin realize that they need more information. And so the next day, they go to Sutton Cottage to visit Reggie's aunt, Flora, who had sent him a letter, which Mrs. Morrissey uh, had conveyed to them in the country. The entire property surrounding Sutton Cottage is heavily warded, which makes it very uncomfortable for Edwin, even with the small amount of magic that he has, to pass through, and it would be worse for people with greater magic. They meet with Mrs. Sutton, who explains basically that the myth of the last contract, the magical pact, left to the three most powerful families in England when the Fae left the mortal realm to return to their own is a real thing. And men who are seeking to increase their power are now searching for the three magical objects that are part of this pact, the coin, the cup, and the knife. Mrs. Sutton had the coin for many years, but gave it to Reggie to hide when he realized that these magical men had gotten involved and were after it. 
She sends Robin and Edwin out to roam her extensive gardens while she does some research in her personal library and warns Edwin not to enter the maze at will, as it will attack magical folks. Well, a masked man attacks Edwin and pushes him into the maze and Robin follows and Edwin is unable to escape as the entrance to the maze closes and the maze tries to attack him. So he and Robin try to dash through it to get to the other end. But when they get to the metal, the middle of the maze, it is so aggressive that they cannot escape. And so to keep Robin from being murdered by this maze, Edwin makes a pact with the land using his blood and the maze lets them leave. However, as soon as they're freed, there's a great commotion at Mrs. Sutton's house and they rush in to find her dead. It seems that she has killed herself to keep her attacker, the masked man, from getting the information that he wants about the coin. And it turns out that Edwin is now the heir to her property and Sutton Cottage, courtesy of the masks, the, the pact that he made in the maze and Flora Sutton believing that they had a similar affinity for magic. Robin and Edwin stay overnight at the cottage and are overcome by their attraction to each other. Then they have sex. Edwin struggles with allowing himself to fully accept his feelings for Robin because everything that he has ever valued or loved has been taken from him by his bully of a brother, Walt. The next day, they return to Edwin's home and find that Robin's sister, Maud, has taken it upon herself to show up there too. They're all shocked. And have to explain magic to her. But also Edwin has to keep his family from trying to dose her with a potion that would take her memories from her. Because humans, non-magical people, are not supposed to know about magic. Since being cursed, Robin has had visions of the future. And Edwin realizes that he has foresight, which is a very rare and coveted ability. The morning after returning from Sutton Cottage, Robin goes to the library to try to figure out how to gain control of the foresight, but he gets stuck in the visions. Servants alert Edwin, who fears that Robin may be dead, and though he's not, he's in really bad shape. And so Edwin hypothesizes that by slowing Robin's heart rate to the point of death, he may be able to lift the curse, and so he and Charlie work together. And this time they're able to lift it. And they think that that might be the end of the foresight too, but it's not. Robin has an episode of foresight at breakfast and everything falls apart. Comments made by Belle and her companions make Robin realize that at least initially Edwin planned to wipe his memory too. And he feels betrayed and hurt that Robin would do that to him after everything that they have shared with each other. And is also very protective of his sister, Maude. And so Robin packs his things, planning to leave and pleads with Edwin to ask him to stay, to explain things, to indicate that he cares, but Edwin does not. His self-esteem and self-worth are so low, low that he doesn't feel worthy of Robin and is again afraid of him being taken from him. And so Robin leaves for the city and so does Edwin shortly thereafter. Edwin goes to Robin's office in town and encounters Adelaide. Mrs. Morrissey, who pre presents him with Robin's resignation letter. His gaze snags on a ring on Adelaide's finger, and she reveals that Reggie actually gave it to her. And so he makes a connection about Reggie's family clock and the ring, and he goes to the clock repair shop where the clock is, and he finds another identical ring hidden within the clock. And he realizes that this must be part of the coin. However, at that precise moment, someone unexpected puts a magical bridle on Edwin, stealing his ability to talk or move of his own volition. 
So what will happen to Edwin? Will he end up like Reggie? And what about Robin? Go read the book. Spoilers abound from here on. I'm glad that we decided to make our focus this month on LGBTQ books. Um, the way that this story was written and the wording, the author's style, the way that it read and was just put together was lovely. It was so like when I started it, my brain just felt like yummy reading the text. It was so nice. But the pacing felt a little bit slow to me, especially in the last part of the book. And I struggled to stay interested. And it's just that my my attention wandered, especially in the last part of the book, which I feel like is when your attention should be really focused. Yeah. So I struggled with this book. So it's interesting that I struggled with this book, but I'm excited to talk about it. Um, so I kept falling asleep. Right. And I wonder, Mm -hmm. my thought was, I wonder if it has something to do with the style of writing because it is very pretty. It's kind of lyrical and stuff like that. And Mm -hmm. I really enjoy it. But I also struggled with like Night Circus and it has like kind of a similar writing style along with like Daughter of Smoke and Bone. Yeah. And so I think for me, like maybe like, I think it like lulls me to sleep. It's such like, I I think that might be... um, why I struggled with it but I really enjoyed the book at the same time so it was kind of you know difficult I'm excited to talk about it I'm excited to talk about the themes Mm -hmm. it was just like while I was reading I just like lulled me to sleep I guess it's interesting that you brought up the night circus because I had that same thought the writing style reminded me of Erin Morgenstern who wrote Mm -hmm. the night circus and she wrote the starless sea um it's just like pretty And I also started to wonder if, so like I've been reading a whole lot of, uh, I would call it quick and dirty smut. Like we jump in, there is sex in the first, I don't know, 60 pages or so. And it's just like wham, bam, a lot after that. And this story I would say was more like literary focused. So like there was the romance with the, the romance is almost kind of secondary in the plots. And mm-hmm. so I wondered if part of that is just that I've been reading so much smut lately that my brain is like, wait, 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 <laughs> this isn't smut. <laughs> <laughs> in which case I just need to expand my mm, reading palette a little bit more. I think smut is just so enjoyable. It gives you, I mean, you know, happy feelings. Right. <laughs> right. The serotonin. Yes, serotonin and dopamine. I mean, they're just like, ah, uh, which is fine. I mean, it is, it's like candy for your brain, but I don't want that to affect my ability to read things that are a little bit more serious too. Yes. The main characters in this book are lovely. Mm-hmm, they I are. I just loved both of them. And I felt, I felt so bad for Edwin for the majority of this book. I mean, me too. Very, I go ahead. Yeah, sorry. I was gonna say me too. Like his, he has like no self confidence. He feels so bad about himself, and that frustrated me so much because he's so smart and clever. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just, yeah. 
And I feel like that's in contrast to a lot of books that we read, especially in fantasy where the main character is usually or is often super confident and (laughs) self-sufficient and feels very capable. I'm just thinking of like uh, Farah and Aelin and even that, um, oh, Dingbat from the Shadow and Bone books. Like she was at least kind of capable and believed in herself some. Um, and so it's difficult <laughs> to- Sorry, it was just Dingbat. I just <laughs> got stuck there for a second. Continue. What was her name? Alina. Was it Alina? I don't remember. Ugh. Like even the girl from um, the Daughter of Smoke and Bone, like she was very capable, very- and, and Edwin is capable too. He just doesn't believe in himself. And that's hard to read. It is. And it was interesting when we started and you first introduced to him, when you're introduced to him sort of from Robin's point of view, I didn't get that immediately. He seemed kind of, you know, I want to say like stuffy or something, but like, you know. um, Arrogant? Yeah. I guess maybe arrogant. Like, so when he first, like on that first initial encounter that they had, right. Where he's yeah. like, where's Reggie, you know? And then we switched to Edwin's point of view and he's like, so insecure. And mm-hmm. I was like, Oh no. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's hard. Oh, and it's interesting because you kind of get that perspective of how like Edwin or Robin doesn't perceive that from him until he interacts with his family and he can see how he can see how his family beats him down. Right. Mm-hmm. And how his entire demeanor changes when he interacts with his family. And so I think that's a good representation of how the way that you perceive another person can be completely different from the way that the person perceives themselves and feels about themselves. Yes. Yeah. And Robin, even though despite the way that Edwin interacts with his family and the way that they treat him, Robin still sees him as very capable and uh, very talented. And he is Um, the imagery. So in their first encounter, Edwin uses magic to make that snowflake. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the first sort of captivating moment that Robin has with him where he's like, oh, this guy's special. Yeah, and Edwin thinks, oh, well, he's enthralled by it now, but he doesn't know the extent, like, he doesn't know how weak I am in terms of my magic and what it can be. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, but I love that Robin, that's not how it progressed through the book. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so we kind of get some insight into Edwin's life growing up and and how that and how that manifests in the way that he acts as an adult uh, with the low self-esteem and the low self-worth and the lack of confidence and so when he interacts with his family I mean it's really obvious that he's been the victim of bullying by his older brother and teasing and I mean possibly some bullying by his sister he's very obviously not the favored child his father um is very obviously demonstrating favoritism toward his brother Walton and, and his sister Belle too, even though she's a girl and girls with their, I don't know, uh, what soft brains. Yes. Can't handle <laughs> training for <laughs> magic. <laughs> um, Edwin's life, I feel like has been traumatic. 
-hmm. And then you add to this, his mother who was complicit in him being treated poorly, you know, and recognizing that 1908 England and he's 25, I think in this story. So early or late 1800s England, like there was a very limited amount of things that his mother probably could have done to protect him. Right. right? Mm -hmm. And also just the way that boys are treated Mm -hmm. or whatever, like there's probably not a lot that she could have done, but still we have a child who was not protected. Yeah. And that follows him through just in his whole life. Obviously Mm -hmm. you see it too. He mentions sort of in the relationships that he picks Mm -hmm. um, as well, like with Lord Hawthorne, right Mm -hmm. he was the one he wasn't treated super well like one of the reasons that lord hawthorne had like picked him was because he didn't have a ton of magic so this like what his family instilled in him how he had little self-worth carried through to his adult relationships Mm -hmm. and that's just so sad it is sad and you add to that uh edwin's belief that he's not worthy of affection or love from other people and also that he like there's no stability no sense of safety in maintaining those relationships because his brother has threatened or taken away everything from him in his life mm-hmm. and so that's how he approaches relationships too like his sexual interactions at least in part in the beginning with um robin like he doesn't want to receive fellatio but he wants to give it he, when they do actually have sex, he wants it to be like quick and rough, not something that could be more drawn out and instill a deeper connection with another person because he might form an attachment or become vulnerable and it could hurt him emotionally. Mm-hmm. We see him struggle with uh, helplessness and powerlessness in his interactions with his family. Um, And I think he experiences a freeze response. You know, there's sympathetic nervous system activation. He there's fight, flight, and freeze. Mm -hmm. And he experiences a freeze response several times in response to threats. This uh, a lot of times in response to Walt, his original, um, I wouldn't say attacker, although that, that word could probably apply his original bully um, when he interacts with Walt and there's a threatening type of situation, it's almost like he walks up, right? Or any other type of threat. It seems like he, like with the maze, like he gets knocked down, he stands up and there's this moment of panic because there's a masked man and the masked man shoves him into the maze. And it's Robin that comes in after him. Robin mm-hmm. is there like, hey, what are you doing? Ready to take action. I think, and even at the end of the book, he experiences a freeze response and it's a house that jumps in to save him. Walt kind of like uh, makes the action like he's going to cut his finger off, fingers off and Edwin has this moment of panic and freeze. And it's that fear that gets the house to take action on his behalf and restrain Walt so that he can't cut his fingers off. Yeah. I love that house for him. I, yes. Well, I love that through this whole book, Edwin's uh, inner monologue is like, I don't have enough power. I don't have enough magic. There's literal like powerlessness 
in relation to the other people in his life who have greater magical ability. And so I love that by the end of this book, he's able to take some of that power back. He has a house that has an immense amount of power and that he can use. Hopefully, maybe that will start building some of the confidence that he can have in himself. Um, you know, I would love for him to be able to glean some of that ability on his own, but maybe between the house and his relationship with Robin building him up, he'll be able to recognize that he has some worth just beyond like the amount of power that he has. Yes. Edwin and his self-worth. I just, it was, I enjoyed seeing his progression throughout the book, especially at the end there with, um, with him embracing like tricking his brother Mm -hmm. into that uh, promise was fantastic and that shows like okay so sure he's not super magically powerful maybe but he's smart I mean he created like what his own version basically of the Dewey Decimal System for a magical library yeah you know yeah he he is very smart and very talented he comes up with all of these they call them cradles, like the spells that they cast. He comes up with a lot of brilliant spells. Um, he just doesn't have the magical like level of ability to be able to cast them, but he can tell other people how to do it. Mm-hmm. He's enormously smart and very creative. The spell that he uses to break uh, the curse on Robin is spectacular. He uses a cleaning spell. He's able to have the uh what creativity to look at modern uh, or just really practical skill skill spells and see how they could be applied to more severe situations like the curse on robin um which i think is it just shows an enormous amount of cleverness and creativity um but it's not reflected in the way that he talks to himself his inner monologue breaks my heart when he's talking about the way that like the, the way that his father thinks of him and the relationship that he has with Penhallock house, which is his family's house and the, the blood pact that they have with the land, he says, I see what you are and you are not enough. And that's carried throughout the whole book, this feeling of not having enough, not being enough because his only perception of his own worth comes from the amount of magical power that he has. And that's been taught to him by his family. It doesn't matter that he's super smart and creative and talented in other ways. His family only sees worth as coming from the amount of magical ability that a person has. And so his sister, who's a, I mean, twit, because she's been taught to be that way. Let's get real because women have soft brains is somehow more valuable and important than him because she has higher level of magical ability. And that's enabled his brother to have this inflated sense of self-worth to become a bully. And honestly, I kind of think that his brother Walt is a narcissist, Uh, but because he has the most magic I feel like the word narcissist gets thrown around a lot these days and I don't know if it applies if we're just realizing like wow there's way more narcissists out there than we ever thought before or 
um, if it's being applied incorrectly. But um, Walt does see people for what they can do for him, not for the their inherent value, <laughs> um, just for the, the value that they can provide for him. And he feels entitled to whatever he wants. Um, whether he's actually entitled to it or not. And he acts pretty casual about killing people to get what he wants, including his family members. Like he was just going to cut Edwin's fingers off. And he just real casually pushed Edwin into that maze that would have killed him. So yeah, narcissist, psychopath. Entitlement feeling like he's entitled to all of this because that's oh yeah kind of the he's way he definitely was entitled do those things make him like a psychopath or a narcissist i don't know it is hard because you're right narcissists gets thrown around a lot um yeah these days so i don't really i don't yeah. know i'm not um, educated enough to say like he is or he is not but it feels like we trend in that direction yes he's trash either way they're all trash. He's all trash. of these, like, I've never been so disappointed in a group of magical beings as I was when I read this book and realized they all suck. You know, it kind of gave me like Harry Potter vibes a little bit with how like they thought muggle, well, you know, like. Yeah, not magical um, people. Yeah. Um, some of them, not all of them, you know, thought that muggles were awful or that half. Um, Inferior. Yeah, we're inferior and all of this. Just give me some. Although, of course, like whenever I read like anything magical like this, I'm gonna relate it back to Harry Potter, probably. Just right. like whenever I read like vampire stuff, I'm gonna relate it back to Buffy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it's just I feel like kind of a different. So the magic in this world is a little bit is sort of different, or some parts of it are original compared to what we've seen in the past, but. I feel like uh, when we've encountered magical people in the past, they haven't all been trash. Right. Now they are, except, I mean, just the ones that we've been exposed to. Mrs. Kitty, Catherine Cower, Mrs. Morrissey's sister, doesn't seem like she's trash, but basically everyone else, trash. Mm -hmm. The way that they're so, like, cavalier about memory wiping people and bringing them to their house and exposing them for magic and then taking all of those memories away, I was appalled. It feels like such a violation at the end when they're um, explaining to Robin how it's a game. Belle or one of the other people will bring a non-magical person out to their house and expose them to all of this stuff. Mm -hmm. And, and then, then wipe make their... Yes. God... I couldn't, I did not like her. So she and her uh, significant other, what was his name? Charles? Charlie. Charlie. Um, Charlie, they kind of like reminded me a little bit of what Robin has said about his parents in that at one point um, she says, uh, Edwin says that they surrounded themselves with people who are in love with them, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And that's also what Robin's parents kind of did um, yeah. as well. And yeah, I did not like his family at all. Like, I feel like Belle, right? Belle's, um, her cruelty was kind of more disguised under this like, haha, isn't this fun? We're having such yeah. a laugh. But no, you're still being a jerk. Yes. 
you are still trash. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, Edwin's whole family was trash. All of Belle's friends were trash. His mm-hmm. mother, I felt bad for. Uh, like we get some glimpses of like she probably, I think Edwin says at one point, like it's almost as if she wished that he had no magic rather than the small amount that he had. Mm-hmm. We get again kind of a sense of helplessness with her in the illness that she has, but also uh in that she had a child that she could not protect but the the context is so different just in the power that women had in 1908 or early or late 1800s england versus the power that women had now in relationships and their abilities to parent so what did you think of robin i loved robin oh so he's so sweet he's not like I mean, he's not clever like Edwin or anything, but he's so sweet. I love at one point he says, like, talk to me like I'm stupid, you small words Mm. (laughs) or something like that. And um, he also comes from sort of like a troubled uh, childhood, you know, like his parents were philanthropists, but they were philanthropists under the guise of like wanting the attention for it and wanting people to think that they're amazing and they're so good. Um, and then they go behind their backs and trash talk them, you mm-hmm. know, like trash talk their friends. And, but he came out of all of that as being just like this sweet man who wants to protect Edwin and wants to like pull Edwin out of his own mind. You know, he mentions, mm-hmm. I think he mentions it and Edwin mentions it sometime, like getting him to smile. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The way that he describes, like the way that he describes Edwin laughing for the first time, it's like time stops. Mm -hmm. He's precious. I love Robin. I think he's my favorite character in the story and he's not intelligent or clever in the way that Edwin is, Mm -hmm. but he's not dumb either. No, he's he's not just intelligent in different ways. I love how kind he is and how dedicated he is to supporting and helping Edwin, even though it's a completely different and new world. Um, and then eventually how he steps in to protect Edwin, mm-hmm. his support for Edwin amidst all of the chaotic stuff that's going on is just so sweet. Yeah. He's earnest and caring And I love for Edwin that there's at least someone in his life who is a complete stranger, but who's willing to be that for him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I loved Robin. I loved watching their relationship grow in this book. Mm -hmm. Um, He was sweet. The way that he interacts with his sister is really great too. Maude kind of annoys me. She, she get, I mean, but I, she's probably like a petulant teenager. She's talking about going to college. So uh, it can't be helped maybe, but um, the way that he interacts with her and the way that he talks about their pact with one another to always be honest because their parents were not. Right. So what he says, um, we had to be real to one another because I don't think we were real to them. Yeah. About his parents and their relationship. Yeah. Yeah. The vibe that the kids were almost like trophies for them. Right. Right. 
Definitely. Here's well, my charitable donation. Mm-hmm. I mean, they push Robin into like being a civil servant, mm-hmm. right? Um, I don't think they really did. I don't know what they did with Maud. I don't think it said, or maybe I just don't remember. Right. Um, But I do like they were like a support system for each other. And I like, and that's good. So they both had like, so like Edwin and Robin both had horrible parents and not great families, but Robin was able to have a sister for a support system Mm -hmm. where Edwin didn't really have the support of anybody in his family. And you can kind of see like, the you know the difference with that growing up you know mm-hmm. parents that were awful just in different ways also mm-hmm. like the performative uh the performative charity not actually doing it because you care about being charitable doing it for the approval of other people right um i think robin says i think it was from uh charity done out of ruthless self-promotion was still charity mm-hmm. and it made me think a little bit of today you know, we see these ultra wealthy people donating to causes and how much you wonder how much of it is sincere Mm -hmm. or just for publicity, especially when like somebody will, I don't know, insult someone or, you know, insult like maybe the LGBT uh, community. And then all of a sudden they'll be like, oh, well, let's donate to a cause that's close to them like as if that's the way they're apologizing yeah but it's fake I mean I guess all donations are are good but that's what it made me think of his parents um you know uh that just that right there reminds me a little bit so I this was a new term to me it's called rainbow washing um when a company uses rainbow advertising during June to support the LGBT community, but only during June. And then um, it's just a marketing ploy, but during the rest of the year, they'll donate funds to people who are anti-LGBTQ people. Like Toyota, I think is one of the um, ones that I saw recently. Uh, Oh no, the Home Depot. So they, I'm looking at um, an Instagram uh, account that I started following recently. It's Matt XIV, um, but he posted something about this. Uh, the Home Depot donated like 1.8 billion or million dollars to 111 anti-LGBTQ politicians. But they got Happy Pride on their page. It's true. Corporations will just be like, oh, I mean, they take advantage of any sort of anything that they really can. You know, like. Um, Breast Cancer Awareness Month, mm-hmm. right? Um, then they take advantage of these things for publicity for themselves and to try to up their sales or to seem inclusive because they have to. Yeah. Because um, that's what's happening around them. Yeah. But uh, June goes away and all of a sudden they're trash again. Yep. Back to Robin and Edwin, they're flirting in their interactions with each other and the way that they think about each other sets my heart on fire with joy and love and feelings. Yes. They're precious. They are. Um, Gosh, they're so sweet. So for me, it was interesting. So I, 
you know, we all love angst to a certain extent in book romance novels, mm-hmm. right? But I, this, the angst in this book made me sad yeah. instead of like, oh, yay, angst, the way it is in a lot of like male female books. And I think in my head, I think it's because a lot of like um, heterosexual books, all of the pressure or most of the pressure is coming from like internal pressure Mm -hmm. to not be with the person or like maybe familial pressure or friends you know um which is kind of a small group of people that you'd need to convince whereas in this in this time period and everything it's society it's society as a whole that this pressure is coming from that for them to not be together so it's like they want it and but the angst is coming from the outside yeah there's like a literal danger associated with them being together Right. Right. This is a scary time to be a gay person. Mm -hmm. Um, I looked up on Wikipedia, some information about like the laws and stuff related to being gay in 1800s, 1900s, um, England. And it's, it's scary. So, um, I got this information from Wikipedia, but in 1861, the death penalty for buggery, which is like sodomy, anal sex was abolished when the offenses against um, persons, the offenses against the person act in 1821 was replaced with the offenses against the person act in 1861. A total of 8,921 men had been prosecuted since 1806 for sodomy, 404 sentenced to death and 56 executed. That's wild. Like it is wild. uh, I just, I don't understand the obsession with what's, what is happening in somebody else's bedroom yeah or relationships and it goes I mean look how far it goes back we still have it today obviously yes you know and it goes back centuries why at at some point they changed the law from being buggery to gross indecency between males um it was like in 1885 there was a law surrounding that and gross indecency was just sexual acts so it doesn't necessarily have to be anal sex, just any type of sexual act between males. These laws didn't come into effect for females until like 1930. I guess they thought women weren't capable of having sex with each other. Obviously not with our soft brains. We would never figure that out. Our soft brains and our, like the fear, I saw a thing recently. It was like women weren't allowed to be on trains because they thought the uterus would like just fly out of their body. If the train went too fast, how can you, how, how can you have such a poor understanding of physiology of women? But then I saw this other, so I'm reading this book also alongside all of the other books that are reading called Becoming Clitorate. And at some point they just decided that the clitoris wasn't important anatomy and they took it completely out of Gray's anatomy. Oh gosh. What the hell? <laughs> Is that why people think it doesn't exist? That must be must be they can't find it because they literally took it out of the book for a while (laughs) Uh, right yeah tangent again um but anyway uh so in looking all of this information up it took me on like a dive we're about to get real tangential took me on a dive into investigating some of like the laws surrounding um homosexuality in england and um Homosexual acts between people age 21 and over in England were decriminalized in 1967 in Scotland and 
1980 in Ireland in 1982, but in France in like 1791. Mm -hmm. In the state of Arkansas, where I live, it was like 2002. It was in the 70s in Jersey. So it's wild. This is my encouragement to you to go investigate the law surrounding the LGBTQ community in your own state, because I had not until um, like today. And it's, I mean, really discouraging for where I live. A tangent to our tangent. Um, talking about Oscar Wilde, right? Yeah. Um, you said that in France it was it was legal for everyone over the age of twenty one. Oh no, that was in England, Scotland, and Ireland. Oh, okay. Legal for people age twenty one and older. Homosexual acts were decriminalized in France in seventeen ninety one. Okay, because I was when we were reading about Oscar Wilde's trial, the men he was with were young. They were like under eight, like under 18. Yeah. So he could have been like tried for that too. Yes. Yeah. Uh, there was some, so Oscar Wilde's case is mentioned in this book and there were, there were some other problematic things related to his case that we discovered because yeah. he was, he started an affair with someone who was 16 years on, younger than him at some point, which is where I think the initial um, prosecution against him began, but. Right. And one of the people he was in a relationship with 16 years old when he was 39. Mm. That's problematic. <laughs> yes. I mean, just having the backdrop of all of this information kind of reinforces how um, cautious these characters had to be in pursuing a relationship with each other. And you kind of get those vibes as you're reading story, this sort of like uncertainty and in, in this is this person gay or not gay and uh hawthorne kind of out edwin when they yeah. go and see him and then robin finds it a pamphlet of homoerotic stories and it's like oh yeah that one i've read that one and so they kind of there's this like very cautious sort of feeling out between the two of them right because they can't just come out straight and be like do you like me <laughs> sort of i'm thing. gay are you gay right hi they gay have... <laughs> let's start a club <laughs> um yes and because so they I... could like literally go to jail or be killed because uh, of it right so it's never i don't think it's ever explicitly stated really like there's never a full conversation between them about like, yes, I am. Are you sort of thing? Yeah. It's all. I had these interactions when I was in college. Mm -hmm. And I mean, even his family, the way that they talk about it, it's like uh, what his that's described as his inclinations, I think mm -hmm. Edwin's inclinations, but back to their flirting and the way that they talk to each other and about each other. Oh, it's so sweet. I could just pass out. Mm -hmm. Edwin says about Robin, like just the way that they like their gentle touches. Oh man. But he says he wanted to burrow beneath Robin's skin and never come out. 
And Robin thinks about, or Robin says to Edwin, I'm wondering what sort of blind idiot I was not to find you attractive when we first met, which leads into him thinking it did make Robin want to drag him back to bed, pin him down and murmur praise into his skin until it inked itself there like the opposite of a curse. So sweet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we get some tension and like their thoughts too, like about them fighting. So Edwin at one point, um, he watches like uh, rainwater on um, Robin's neck and stuff and is like aroused by it. And then he's like, it was a slip. Yeah. I didn't actually mean it sort of thing. Yeah. Um, it's interesting some of that internal like not monologue it's not the right word whatever internal narration from like the characters about them dealing with their sexuality themselves mm-hmm. and about not even really fully acknowledging it to themselves mm-hmm. even yeah um, being afraid to yeah or being uh what pressured not to Mm-hmm. Yeah. My favorite quote is uh Robin thinks this about Edwin at one point, and it just oh, it was so lovely, lovely. Um he thinks to himself, you look like a Turner painting, and I want to learn your textures with my fingertips. You are the most fascinating thing in this beautiful house. I'd like to introduce my fist to whoever to whoever taught you to stop talking about the things that interest you. It's just so lovely. And it's not, there's another point. So I like the imagery that's crafted in this quote. Uh, when he says, I want to learn your textures with my fingertips. And I think that's kind of what we're talking about with the writing with this book. Yeah. Too um yeah she brings the the attention back to fingers again in another point in this story it's what their first sexual encounter with each other uh edwin is sitting behind robin and he's got his like cock in his hand and he's pleasuring him and she brings the attention from edwin's focus to the way that his fingers look the way that his hand looks in relation to robin's body he says Mm -hmm. i could spend hours just watching this my hand moving over his skin. I don't think I've ever paid that much attention to hands before, but it makes me want to start. The way that she crafted that passage was just captivating. And so we're talking, we were talking earlier about this not being so much a romance as like literary fiction, I guess. Mm -hmm. Um, So but when we do get romance and oh. we do get the sex here, it's a, it's great. It's wonderful. It is. It's wonderful. So, cause there is this, like, it's not the, like, so when you read like pure romance, not like, not pure, like, but when you read like novels that are heavy on romance, right. There's this like Christian crescendo buildup to it sort of. Mm-hmm. Whereas with this, it's much more subtle yeah. and it's not this like, it just gets worked into the story, mm-hmm. you know, more so than it obviously being like the focal point of anything. It's just like worked in like that. 
Mm-hmm. And I liked that. Plus the sex scenes were great. I don't know what it is about two men pleasuring each other, but boy, is it hot. Like my gosh, (laughs) (laughs) it does make me wonder about, so, um, uh, Edwin penetrates, uh, Robin at some point and he uses hair oil as a lubricant. Mm -hmm. And then later in the story, he uses petroleum jelly. And both times I was just thinking, Oh, those are not good lubes. Vaseline, petroleum jelly, more so in use with condoms because it can break down condoms. They're not using condoms in this scene, but mm-hmm. my brain and just thinking about like the conversations that I have at work, I'm like that's not something you want to use with the condom. Um, but it does make me want to do an investigation of like what type of what did they use for lubricant in <laughs> 1900s England and how did we get to where we are now with lubricants today? So I, I looked up the history of lubricant. <laughs> The earliest evidence of its use dates back to 350 BC when the Greeks used it. Okay. Mm -hmm. With olive oil. Oh, oh, just some (laughs) EVOO. Rachel Ray would be so pleased with that knowledge. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. In Japan, um, they used clove oil for anal sex due to its pain killing and muscle relaxing abilities. Huh. They also used a substance called torojuru made from mashed yams. And then it was 1872 became Vaseline. Though it wasn't meant to use for sex. And then the 1904 KY jelly arrived. Oh boy. I have no idea where that, oh, right. We were talking about the lube they used. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Um, in another of their sex scenes, uh, Edwin uses this like blue magic. It's like a, a I was oh, imagining like yes. electric shocks. Me kind too. Of. Yeah. Is that what you, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, to stimulate different parts of Robin's body and the buildup and the description is outstanding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. also robin's desperation is uh to to uh go further right mm-hmm. also also very good yeah what and this is where we see kind of the difference in um edwin from the beginning of the book to the end of the book too so uh we have a super <laughs> We have a super proper sexual interaction here where uh, Robin says to (laughs) Robin says to Edwin, um, I was thinking I'd quite like to suck your prick (laughs) and um, Edwin declines, but says, Mm -hmm. I would like to do the same for you. And Robin says, thank you awfully. I suppose like the manners. (laughs) I do like there is there's that consent built into yes, it. Yes, right? yeah, Robin there's consent. <laughs> and well, because Robin mentions that he's kind of like taken aback a little bit, but he wasn't going to force Edwin to do anything that he didn't want to do. Yeah, you know. Yes. So we see Edwin sort of creating these walls between himself and Robin in terms of their intimacy because he doesn't want to. He doesn't want to put. Um 
himself in emotion in a, in a place where he can be harmed emotionally. And so it's like, he has more control if he can offer that to Robin. And then also when they do finally have like penetrative sex, um, he, Robin, um, tells, or no, Edwin tells Robin that he wants it fast and rough. Right. Because again, slowing things down crafts more intimacy, but we see that in contrast from midway through the book to the very end where we have this resolution and uh, Edwin says to Robin, I don't want you to let me to get away from it. He wants to draw it out. He wants to carry it on as long as possible because he's in a point where he can recognize uh, we've gone through all of this resolution with his brother, uh, Edwin and Walt, and uh, Edwin has kind of leveled the playing field. He's taken some power away from Walt and he's feeling more empowered, but he's also starting to see like, Hey, I can have nice things. I can have a relationship with someone that I care about and I'm worthy of that. And the threat may still be present, but I have some power now. And that doesn't mean that the person I care about is going to be taken from me. And so he's willing to lower some of those barriers that he's crafted. He's willing to stay in the moment and to draw the moment out with Robin. And I love that for that character. It's such a change, you know, you just see that. And yeah. Love seeing our characters evolve. Yes. What did you think about the magic in this story? So I enjoyed all of the magical scenes in this. Um, I felt like um, Edwin's at first one, you know, when he makes the snowflake, mm -hmm. like that was just so pretty, the imagery with that. Mm -hmm. And um but even like the magic that we see with um, his Edwin's sister and stuff, like they play that game in the, like with, they're in a canoe or something, right? Yeah. Yeah, they play that game. I like seeing that. I like seeing the magic. Um, what about you? Yeah, I felt like the approach to magic in this story was pretty original compared to some of the other magical story, like stories with a, a magical world that we've read before like Harry Potter is like you said always the one that we're going to go to but even like a discovery of witches and some of those other stories they call it cradling there's this basis it sounds like they're taught using string and then they uh, develop the ability to craft spells without string um, and there's this intricacy in their hand movements and the laying down of different layers of the magic and so I like that it's different from like having a wand, right? Because I feel like that's where magic goes a lot of times. There's a wand and you cast a spell. There's this idea of there being skill that goes into the crafting of the, the what do they, they call them? Packs or contracts. There's skill that goes into it and it's layered. And um it has to be thought out. And even people who are very practiced with it can struggle with the difficulty in casting the spell. And also there's consent that goes into the crafting of the mm -hmm. story. So you have to consent to being involved in a contract. Um, it's not something to be forced. Right. 
Uh, I like that they also acknowledge that. So I feel like a lot of times magic is viewed as this thing that this thing that kind of makes things easier, right? You just magic yourself into being in another place, apparating or I would love that. summoning something to you. Yeah, it would be super convenient. And I like that in this story, they acknowledge that there are some things that are certainly easier in the non-magical world, the crafting of energy and things like that. Yeah, it's handy for some things, but non-magic people have got it nailed for some other things too. Yeah, it was, it was unique and original. I love reading that in new stories. Mm-hmm. I do think it's interesting that the origins of the magic go back. So they mentioned that the Fae are the ones that give magic to these people. Um, and that it, it's their like pardoning, like their last goodbye. Like we're leaving this realm to go back to where we were from. So they leave magic to three families and three objects of power are associated with it. And it seems like the number three comes up in magic a lot. So like in Harry Potter, the brothers Peveril, there were three brothers, they had three objects. In Hocus Pocus, there are three f- sisters, there are three of the Furies, the Morgan is divided into three parts. Uh, there are three fates. Hecate, the goddess of magic is divided into three as well. The maiden, the mother and the crone. Mm-hmm. That number three is very prominent in mythology, it seems, but magic too. So um, I saw your note in this and I looked it up. And um, the reason, or one of the reasons, I guess, that three is um, considered like so, like a magical number, sort of, right? It's um, three is the smallest number needed to create a pattern. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting um in uh in Greece um in their eyes the number three was considered as the perfect number the number of harmony wisdom and understanding um it is also like a perfect number I don't know so there are a lot of reasons that three is used there's also like the power of three which is a thing and I don't remember but I feel like that's in math what is that? The power of three. Everything that comes in threes is perfect. So we're going to go with that. And that's why three. If anybody else knows any other reasons why three is so prominent in mythology, I'd love to know. Please share it with us. Or if you want to explain the power of three to us. Yeah. Or if you know anything about math. Yeah. (laughs) Please explain. We, We don't have that. Um, yeah, our um, soft woman brains do not, <laughs> yeah. Our, so- I mean, the misogyny in this book. I know, oh my gosh. I, uh, I, get, I got very irritated. <laughs> oh my gosh, when they say, like, oh gosh, what was it? Um, oh, you can't expect a female to handle a directed levitation, can you? Like, what? Yeah, because it requires study. Yes. All right. They're good with bows and arrows, but they can't do magic. I, oh, so annoyed. I love that Maud was like, I want to go to college. <laughs> you go, girl. But even Robin was like, ah. He was like, ah, though, because she has, like, he said that she has these, like, fixations. Yes. And then she gives them up, and yeah. university is expensive. Yeah. And they don't have and any money. And they're having money problems because they're, philanthropists 
parents gave it all away family yes yeah I mean I get it I get it but like (laughs) Belle I mean she is somehow superior to Edwin because she has more magical ability but she can't do anything to hone it Mm -hmm. she can make arrows fly and do magic like that but anything more serious oh I'm just a poor woman whoa I can't whoa Meanwhile, Catherine Cower and Ad- well, Adelaide Morrissey doesn't have any magical ability, but her sister got it all and she does all this cool stuff in her job. What is that? And Flora Sutton, who's using magic in ways that Edwin didn't even know was possible. She made trees into a barrier. She grew this magic maze. Mm-hmm. The misogyny. Yep. I'll be honest. At the end, I was kind of hoping the Fae would come back and just kill everybody. So whatever take their magic back yeah, they clearly their magic back it. they don't know how to use it properly oh. they're just I mean uh, I got so I feel like these men who are going after the the last contract and just want to accrue power under the guise of it being for something that's coming I mean that just screams small dick energy to me mm-hmm. they underestimate women a lot in this book too like with um uh, uh, Adelaide. I wanted to say Adeline, but that's not her name. Um, so Robin has been in the job a day and he gets cursed, right? Because mm-hmm. they, you know, think, oh, he'll know because he's the one who took over the position. And she's mm-hmm. like, clearly there are no women in the group because they would have, you know, picked me over yep. you, the woman who's been in this role for years. Mm-hmm. I love that. There, uh, Adelaide, I think is just a really interesting character. Um, but her, her, that like her relationship with her sister as well, and the way that she's introduced and her connection to Billy, freaking Billy, what adult that ball bag. Bah. When it, it ended up being him, I was like, oh my gosh, of course it's you. You with not very much magic would be the one over here trying to get all of the magic. Yeah. Um, but so Billy ends up being the one that was betraying them initially, like in part, um, he is the one that puts the, uh, bridle on Edwin when he figures out that the rings and the, the reason for the clock being messed up were because Flora Sutton had transmuted the, the wings or the or the coin into rings, um, and Billy is holding Edwin hostage and Robin comes up with a plan with Adelaide and uh, Kitty, her sister. And it turns out that Kitty was the one that Billy was engaged to, but her grandparents and parents made her break it off because he didn't have enough magic. And so she shows up with Billy holding Edwin hostage and Billy is like, well, if you had loved me enough, you would have told your family to sod off and just married me. And she's like, Yup. <laughs> I loved that. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, if she had loved you enough, but she didn't. And she's happy with the decision that she made, Billy. So it sucks to suck. Mm-hmm. I hated him when he says to um, Edwin, when he realizes that Edwin and Robin have a relationship, he goes, you really are easy for anyone who will smile at you, aren't you? Oh. Uh. I hate that. Made me so mad. Same. 
I got so annoyed when he was going on and on about how they're doing it for the greater good and how they'll just use everybody's magic and something serious is coming and it's really just to protect them. My dude, I have heard this story before. That is not how this is going to go. Oh my gosh. Have you ever watched the show, The Magicians? No. Yes. I watched the first few episodes and then became distracted. They do a bunch of hand movements too. Oh. Yeah. There's this like, they like do a bunch of like twisty hand movements. And sorry, what you said about them taking all of the magic made me think they have this like magical library there. And at one point they do like take all the magic and then like start using it as like, they start kind of rationing it Mm -hmm. because people were abusing magic. Mm -hmm. Um, Sorry. So that just triggered me. And I was thinking, yeah, they use like these. Okay. Anyway, good show though. I enjoyed it a lot. So this book is set in like 1908. I wonder if the something serious that they're alluding to is world war one. Like around the corner. Yeah, it is. I love how Edwin ended up with Mrs. Sutton's cottage and all mm-hmm. the property. And I love how at the end, the, so first of all, Edwin killing Billy, Billy, I felt good about that. I love how at the end, when Walt comes on and he's like, oh yeah, you're going to do all this stuff because I want you to do this stuff because I'm a bad guy. Um, they try to get him, like he demands that they go to Sutton Cottage and then they get there and he's like, wait, 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 wait. And it's the ward that won't let him through. Mm-hmm. I really wanted him to like burst into flames or something, but he didn't. But anyway, I love how in the end, when they're at Sudden Cottage and the house comes to Edwin's defense. Yes. It like hits, what's his name? It hits Walt in the head with a plank or a board or something. Mm-hmm. And then when he tries to uh, attack Edwin, vines come out of the wall and like secure him and pull him up against it and he gets to experience what it's like to be helpless for the first time in his life yes that was great i'll be honest i did kind of want edwin to kill him yeah me too but as i was reading i was like there's no way he's gonna kill him no and i think yeah i think the way that he thought things out and realized like, well, I could kill him, but it wouldn't stop things. And these people would still come through. And this way, if he's alive, we can use him for information. Like the rationale all makes sense. I just wanted Walt to die because he's garbage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, speaking of like, I guess people torturing um, others. Um, in the beginning, Reggie gets killed, right? Awful, yeah. awful death. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. This started off and I was like, is this, I was wondering if it was starting off, like if Reggie was going to be the main character and it was starting from yes, that, you know, like that was yeah. the end um, instead of the beginning. Uh, so, but oh my gosh, what an awful, he was in so much pain, the whole, th- <laughs> gosh, but nobody's worried that really that he's been missing for so long right I know I was like because apparently he just like goes off and does his own thing for like weeks or months at a time and I'm like I was like this is why you always need to check in with people at least like once Mm -hmm. a week because otherwise you could be like kidnapped or murdered or something and nobody will know to look for you they're just gonna assume you've gone off and 
Yes. Or whatever. Yeah. They're all very casual. Like, oh, that's just Reggie. He just mm-hmm. disappears for a while. What? <laughs> Don't be that person. Mm-hmm. That's how you get taken. Yeah. Liam Neeson is not going to come save you. <laughs> the cup, the knife, the coin, the three artifacts from the last contract for magic mm-hmm. were stored in like a church or something and then discovered by a group of women who then realized that they had unearthed something that should not be unearthed and then hid all of the pieces. Um, and I just love the idea of a group of like super powerful granny witches in the 1900s in England being chased around and like revenge, self-killing <laughs> to keep their secrets. Mm-hmm. How badass is that? Tell me women can't do straw magic. Like the imagery also that she, she describes with uh, the way that she describes Flora Sutton's face and like uh, almost like a, a gleeful like fu type of face when she Mm -hmm. died because she was taking her knowledge with her yes Mm. i did think it was really clever at the end of this book the contract that edwin pulls himself and robin into with walt um where like he he promises to kind of keep like they make the promise that walt can't hurt edwin or robin or his sister or any of his family and robin will you know, give them information about his visions, um, but they leave it open so that they can interfere mm-hmm. and just kind of view, like manipulate the situation so that they can stop him down the road. I felt like Robert or Ed- Edwin's cleverness just shone through at the very end of this book. We get to like the very end and Robin and Edwin are together and adorable and amazing. And I love them. And Robin is, um, you know, reporting his visions but doing it in a way that's so annoyingly detailed. <laughs> yes. That like, he's just getting on the nerves of the people in the assembly. It's amazing. I don't think you said your favorite quote. So this is when Edwin and Robin are separated. This is something that Robin thinks. It felt as though every cell in his body had replaced itself over that span of days, silent and individually unnoticed, forming something the exact shape as the old Edwin that nonetheless resonated at a different frequency. I'm actually, I really liked that quote. I thought it was a good example too of the writing style. Mm-hmm. Um, and just kind of like a, summary almost their relationship and like this one sentence that's a that's just one sentence there's a long sentence yeah but um yeah you know it was they didn't spend like I mean they spent a lot of time together but it was just days and how quickly that Edwin imprinted himself Mm -hmm. on Robin yeah well and um there's another quote kind of in the same sort of section of the book Edwin thinking it about Robin he says it didn't like he's just thinking it didn't take long to become so accustomed to something that you could describe the exact shape of its absence I like the way that she describes how affected by each other they were 
and how significant them being apart after only being together for like a week, two weeks affected them. This book is going to be part of a trilogy. So there will be a second book um, that's going to feature Maud. And I believe it will also feature the blonde haired woman. So in several of Robin's visions, there is a blonde haired woman present. And I am going to bet, could be wrong, but I would like to theorize that the blonde haired woman is who will be featured in the next book. And it's kind of looking like there will be a lesbian relationship between Maud and the blonde haired woman. Oh, yes. Hmm. I, I think. Um, that book will be called A Restless Truth, and it should be out later this year. Uh, that wraps up our discussion of A Marvelous Light by Freya Mask. Our next discussion, or our episode next week, will cover Girls of Paper and Fire by Natasha Nyan. Um, I believe that one will feature a lesbian romance, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So uh, join us next week for Girls of Paper and Fire. Thanks for listening. Happy Pride. Thank you for listening to Literary Quest. We hope you enjoyed our episode. If you'd like to follow us on social media, we can be found at Literary Quest Podcast on Instagram or Facebook. You're also welcome to share your thoughts and ideas with us via email at literaryquestpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again.